So, Romans 12 is where we are. We've been walking through this book over the last number of months together. We're remembering the great theme of the exchange. Here's the way that Christianity works. This is what God asks of us. Be honest and bring all of your sin and all of your iniquity. Bring all of your weakness. And then I will give you and clothe you with a righteousness that you could have never, ever, ever earned. Christianity is essentially this, that Jesus came and lived a life that we should have lived but did not. He died a death that we deserved but do not have to die if we trust him. And that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that same Jesus rose from the dead so that we can walk through death that we will all face. That has been the message of this whole book. Romans is probably the most clear, consistent, and I think soaring example of a description of the gospel in all of the Bible. Where we've come to now, as I look at Romans chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse 9, is an application of what to look for in people who have come to know that gospel. So if you're a Christian, if you say, yeah, more or less, that describes me. I believe that God is. I know he's the creator of all things. I believe he's the standard bearer. There's a righteousness that I need. And Jesus has died for me. If that's you, then these will be the kind of things that characterize us over the course of time. Have you received mercy? Have you seen mercy? Do you see what the church is like? We're one but many diverse gifts. Then this is what to start to look for. This is beginning in verse 9 of Romans 12. I'm just going to read through 13. We're going a little bit slow today. Romans 12 verse 9 says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, in whatever ways these words do not mark us now, have mercy. And in whatever hope you might muster in us through your spirit that we would grow in these things, speed that along. I pray now for your church. Thank you for this one time gathering, first time this group's ever been here. What plans might you have for us, God? What good things could you show us from Scripture? And so I ask you now, as a good father who knows how to give good gifts, would you give your spirit in great measure? We need comfort. We are discouraged. We need focus. We're distracted. We've been hurt and hurt others. So God, help us. We want to to see marvelous things, wonderful things in your word. And we need courage to walk in what we see. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. This is a hodgepodge in some ways. I think Romans 12, 9 to 13 is as close as the Apostle Paul gets to writing in the book of Proverbs. It's a little bit everywhere. It reminds me of something, actually. And maybe I'll I'll get to that something by going about it this way. I grew up in a place that very early on I realized not many people would come to. You see, growing up in a Midwestern state way up by Canada, living in North Dakota growing up as a kid, I knew that we were not very popular, famous, anything. We were the definition of a flyover state. 
When you grow up in a place that is almost impossible to get to by accident and has very few reasons to go on purpose, no one shows up. And when someone shows up, it's a big deal. And I learned early on that we did have one thing that sometimes people came for, and that was hunting. Pheasant hunting in southern central North Dakota, some people actually go to do. And this is not a joke. I can recall distinctly a time when word traveled not a few minutes away, but an hour and a half north of Fargo, North Dakota, Everyone was a buzz. Everyone was a flutter. That's a pheasant joke. But everyone was a flutter with the reality that someone significant and important, someone known, had actually visited our state. There were rumors flying, another pheasant joke, that we had encountered a real-life celebrity. It was true, not merely a myth, that Brad Pitt himself had entered a Fargo bar. (laughs) What he was there for was to hunt. And in bird hunting, you use a particular kind, not only of a weapon, but a particular kind of ammunition. You use birdshot. So birdshot is an interesting kind of shot. It is obviously compacted enough and put into a cartridge so that it fits down the, the end of a shotgun. And if you aim it at something and you shoot, you can be most assured that right down the center of where you shoot, you shoot there will be a pattern of, of BBs, and most of the BBs will probably hit that thing dead in the center. So what you want to have affected by this birdshot, aim at that. But it also helps out people like me who are not a very good shot because it will also have a scatter pattern around it where you might not hit the direct thing you're aiming at, but you kind of hit a bunch of stuff else as well. And it feels to me like in some ways what Paul has done is he's just exalted in mercy. All this that Christ has given us, he's going to drive at something. He's aiming at one chief characteristic that's going to come out of people who have been affected by this, but he's going to see that it impacts. There is a scatter plot of BBs that hit nearly every aspect of life as well. Here's what he aims at. Love. I believe that genuine, from-the-heart, motivated love is the aim of the passage. The rest of Romans 12 is aimed at love, but what we see is that the mercy given to us in Christ also affects and impacts and hits much, much more. So what I want to do is start with love as saying that this is the aim of this passage, but then also pause or slow down enough to make sure that we see what else is being hit, what else is impacted by this shot. What we've been given in Christ, what else is impacted? And I believe that there will be these four things mainly that he comments on. First, our love will be impacted greatly. Namely, it will be transformed to be genuine love. So we will love in truth. That's the idea. Our love is genuine. What marks a Christian is genuine love. A second category of things that marks a Christian is that we not only love genuinely, but we serve purposefully. Our service is impacted by what we've been given mercy in Christ. So it's our love and our service. And then third, we suffer well. That's what he's going to say. This is a characteristic you should be looking for. You are enabled in Christ to get through the difficult parts of life more easily. You suffer and endure well. That's the idea. Finally, he's mentioned here in these particular passages, that we give without partiality. We are generous. Christians are those who, because they've been given all things in Christ, give themselves away. 
And it's these ideas that will begin to shape the way that our lives will be not conformed to the world. Do you remember that from the beginning of chapter 12? He says, you should offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to the world. Well, how do you not be conformed to the world? And I think that one of the things you do is you're going to be countercultural. This is what Christians ought to be. We ought to be countercultural in these ways at a minimum. There's going to be some more. He's going to say, you want to be not conformed to the world. Let me get a load of how you should deal with authority. That's what he's going to say in a minute. You want to be countercultural to the world. Think about how you deal with the weak. That's where we're going to go. But for this morning, the characteristics are this. You will be countercultural in the way that you love. You're going to be countercultural, not conformed, in the way that you serve. You're going to be countercultural, completely opposite, not conformed in your enduring suffering and also in the way that you give. So let's look at each of these individually. I love the way verse 9 starts because it's a, a beautiful play on words that seems like a paradox or an oxymoron. Did you notice this? He says, let love be genuine. And then what's the next word after this love? Doesn't it feel like a ballad, like a love song? Like you thought he was starting off, it's a slow piano. Let love be genuine. And what's the next word? Abhor. It's like that's when like the bass hits and then it's really a metal song, you know? It's, it's kind of all over the place. Schizophrenic a little bit, like... Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, it starts, let love be genuine. And then how does he go straight to abhor? Don't those things seem opposite of one another? But the reality is this. Christian love is countercultural in the sense that it is not shallow. It is not flattery. It does not seek to mollify at all costs. It speaks the truth. Goodness and truth are at the core of genuine love. Anyone who seeks to love themselves, another, or an organization, or anything that they're a part of, but refuses to tell the truth about what is taking place, or refuses to push toward the good, is not loving. To love something fiercely, namely to love God and to love neighbor as self, means that we will reject and abhor all that is evil, because evil, that which opposes good, will ultimately lead to the destruction of the thing that we say that we're loving. So to love is not to stay silent and to enable all that the one who we are trying to love desires or wants. Sometimes it means even with difficulty we say, I'm so sorry, but I need to say this. We know this well, and since we had a family up here before, maybe this illustration makes sense. Oftentimes you will do things that are difficult with your children, not because you hate them, but because you love them. You take away their ice cream cone sometimes. You savages. You know, I mean, like how? Well, you do that maybe because of what you know concerning an allergy or something. You grasp them away from fire or from a road. You tell them, I'm sorry to say this, but you are very selfish in the way that you dealt with so-and-so. You tell the truth because you love. This is very different than a worldly instinct that we may have instead to say that loving means that I will never ever fluster the thing that I love. Loving means that I must always do and only ever satisfy or mollify the object of my love. I was reading this week and I had that little moment where Sometimes if I don't have a book of the Bible that I'm reading through or if I'm going to 
read, I'll, I'll just pick like, well, what day is it? I multiply times five and I'll read some of those Psalms. And I had this week that experience where you're reading along and you think to yourself, yeah, I got a couple more minutes. This will be great. I'll just read through. Psalms are great for that. You can pray through them. You think about them. And then I had the experience this week where you had a couple more minutes and you look and you know what comes next? Psalm 119. And that's a very inside baseball Bible joke for those of you. And I'll, get, I'll let you in on the joke. The 119th Psalm is amazingly long. It's the long by a mile. It doesn't go on. It's not the psalm like you think about, like a, one you could memorize, like Psalm 23. It's pages and pages long. And so I got to it, and I thought to myself, all right, well, I'll work through this part of this today and part tomorrow. And the section that I ended on when I was reading through it was the 53rd verse of Psalm 119. And it struck me because, well, Psalm 119 is a love letter. It's a love letter to God and to his commands, to the fact that there's justice and structure and law in the world. And then he says this in Psalm 119, in order to prove his love, look what he says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. I think the King James says something like, I was struck sick, I was sicketh because of the wicked. What a phrase, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked. You see, he so loves who God is and what God loves in the world that when he sees something tearing it away, he boils up inside. This word for indignation, I love the writing here. It's a Hebrew word that means exactly that. He's indignant, he's saddened by, he's appalled by, he's repulsed by. And they throw the adjective on the front for hot or burning. How is it that the psalmist could love and have hot indignation? Well, he might say, that, what kind of question is that? I have indignation here because I love. Have you ever been torn up inside and just hated the thing that was tearing apart the person you loved? Love must be built on something stronger than mere sentiment. Genuine love must be built on something stronger than, I like being with this person and don't want to fluster them. There's a quote that I read this week from a a pastor that I thought was fitting in this section. I think it captures well the kind of thing that Paul's getting at. He says this, God's law reveals the way in which the world and our souls were designed. So to disobey God's law is always bad for the beloved. Therefore, real love must be concerned about truth. Any love that is afraid to confront the beloved is not really love but a selfish desire to be loved. And this kind of selfish love is afraid to do what is right toward God or the beloved if it risks losing the beloved's affection. It makes an idol out of the beloved. It says, I would do anything to keep him or her loving me. This is not a loving person. It is loving the love that you get from the person. In other words, it is loving yourself more than that person you love. So, in fact, any love that cuts corners morally or fails to confront is not really love at all. True love, on the other hand, is willing to confront, even to lose the beloved in the short run, if there is a chance of helping him or her. True love is willing, in fact, must be built on truth. This ought to be done with care. You can acknowledge the pain in it. It does not mean that it will be easy 
But any ongoing, consistent, genuine love will tell the truth. It is why Christians are often those kind of people. Even amongst our own, we should be the kind of people who refuse to let things go in an evil manner just because we're winning. We are those who are willing to stop and pause even if it halts the mission because we say, no, no, I love this thing so much it can't be built on this. That doesn't work. So our love as Christians over the course of time will grow not in flattery, not in self-interested, not in back-scratching yours and mine, not in simply satisfying or placating or enabling, but we will not be content until we've built our relationships with ourselves, with God, with others and institutions on real, truthful love. This is difficult to do, but anyone who has ever been loved in this way knows the difference. Second, Paul says, here's what Christians end up doing. When they receive the mercy of Christ, they serve differently. They serve purposefully. So they love with a unique distinction, and they serve with a unique distinction as well. He said in this particular passage, verse 11 has a, a trifecta, a trio of little phrases that I think all bundle up together to describe the way that we inhabit the world in our service. It says in verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Again, a wonderful little play on words and a phrase. Don't be lazy about being passionate. Don't get tired of being all in. Maybe another way the Bible might say it is don't grow weary of doing good. So he says, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Here's the amazing thing about what we're given in Christ. Because our eternal destiny is satisfied and settled in Jesus, because we know that all things are from God and they're sustained by Him and they're through Him and they'll ultimately be to Him, it transforms every moment of our waking days. Christians are those who have realized that we can do all things to the glory of God, whether we eat or drink or anything that we do. It changes the way that we serve hot dogs at a vending stand at football games. It changes the way that we install windows. And yes, I'm making the turning thing. For those of you under the age of 30, you used to roll your windows down. That was a thing. If you're installing windows and window rollers in a factory, you say, you know what? I'm serving with purpose. This isn't a throwaway time anymore. All that I am and all that I have now aims to the glory of God. It changes the way that you serve people on hospice and care in oncology wings of hospitals. It changes the way that you teach children about the world that they're inhabiting and the things that are possible. It changes the way that you interact with the weakest among us. It changes everything about the way that we serve. We do not wish to be freed from work, or we don't wish to be merely idle, but because we've been given life back and life eternal, we are active and purposeful. We serve not merely on a math formula of ins and outs, of what's in it for me, but we have purposeful zeal. That's what he's saying. Purposeful zeal between, behind the things that God has given our hands to do. This means that it would be a rare thing and ought to be a rare thing to encounter a Christian who knows the mercy they've been given in Jesus to be walking about with entitlement or a begrudging spirit. Or worse, a kind of cynicism that says, 
nothing's worth it anyway. I know, I know, I know, sometimes being negative about the world is a fun joke to make. When I got engaged, every single guy that I worked with at the factory, the, the mill and elevator that I worked at at the time, every single one of them ball and chained me to death. The funniest thing in the break room. Oh, the old ball and chain. Oh, my. It's terrible. I, I know, and, and of course, I'm not jumping on the table and saying, how dare you insult the sanctity of marriage? I, I know. We all live in this world, Right? But we also need to be aware of the reality that for many of us, we encounter the service, the work that God has given us, the provision that he gives us in our jobs. We move from a kind of lighthearted banter about the fallenness of the world to a settled conviction of cynicism, of entitlement, that really the world owes me so much more than this. And Paul says, no, that's not the thing you'll encounter in the spirit of Jesus in you. You'll set your face, despise the shame, and you'll serve with zeal. So serving changes in light of the mercy of Jesus. That's what's being said. Now, this is a rare thing. I remember the first job I had. I was a gas station attendant at the town mart in Manville. And not to be judgmental by any means, but I could not believe how unpleasant Every person that worked there seemed to be about their job. I remember thinking at the time that I was entering the great race of meritocracy. I'm in the workforce now, and everybody's going to be just, it's dog-eat-dog, and you just better go. And what I found was that if I just didn't hate life, I would be noticed. The reality is, is that to be the kind of person that serves out of principle, out of excess of what we've been given, who does so because they believe there's a greater purpose to the world is one of the best gifts that we can give to the workforce. We serve with purpose, not entitlement. Third, Paul says this, that we're going to be those who endure well. We suffer well. That's the point of Romans 12, verse 12. We rejoice in hope, he says. We're patient in tribulation and we're constant in prayer. He's going to use a similar trifecta in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He knows that many of the Christians reading these things and thinking about them are suffering. So notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Why does he have to say give thanks in all circumstances? Why does he say in verse 12 of Romans 12, we should rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation? Well, because you rarely have to encourage or cajole someone to be patient and thankful when things are going super well. If everything's turning up roses, nobody has to command the crowd to show up at Doak when we're 3-0. You just go. It doesn't come up on the screen. But when things are bad, right, when things are difficult, you might have to pay people to come. I will fully admit that I am I'm in, having not grown up here and not much of a commitment to, to college football anyway. I'm in, but I've also been faced with the severe reality that I am in many ways a fair weather fan. And I didn't realize how literal that was until I moved to Tallahassee. The first time that I was invited to go and tailgate or to attend a game in late August or early September, an early game, and I didn't want to say it as directly as this. In fact, I was probably too 
cowardly to say so, but the first and only thing that was rolling through my brain the entire time is, what time is that game? You know what I mean? Oh, it's a noon, it's a noon start. It's a 2.30 start, you say. It's going to be 96 degrees sitting in the sun. And people go watch a football game there. And I realized how unwilling I was so often to sit. I was the definition of a fair-weather fan. Now, some people are not that. And I know those kind of people, and I'm so grateful for them. But if you're the kind of person who's going to go and sit through 2.30 p.m., you're the know-the-roster-of-the-93-team kind of person. You're the I-know-what-recruits-we-missed-in-87 kind of person. And that's just not, it wasn't me. I was fair weather to the point where I maybe would get up if it was a little hot with my thermostat in the house watching it, let alone going. And I think what Paul's trying to say is, Christians stick it out. They're not fair weather fans of Jesus. Do you know the early church was built on the backs of martyrdom? 300 years or so after the death of Christ, Constantine and the whole kingdom change. He sees a vision in the sky of a cross. He begins to put that over conquering armies. They win. And so we know, of course, that the Roman Empire changes and in many ways moves toward an allegiance to Christianity that was unthinkable at the time. But that's not what built the church. The thing that built the church was the unbelievable consistency, steadfastness, and faithfulness of those who were being martyred for their faith. Hebrews tells us that there were many who were subject to beating and torture, sawn in half, all of their worldly possessions carted off, some who were forced to drink molten lead, many who were crucified upside down, and in the midst of it all, maintaining a steadfast testimony concerning the hope they had in Christ. It was this martyrdom, it was this endurance of suffering that spoke to the world with such power. I hope that our good moments speak well. I hope that when we're skating along, or maybe when we're, uh, we're skiing along, you know when you go skiing sometimes, if you get out just before, just at dusk, just before the sun goes down, have you ever skied on a perfectly calm lake? I'm the best on that lake. I can do anything. I can cut in the water, I can go over the wake, get a little bit of air, just like on a basketball court, like a little bit of air. I can get over it. I can drop a ski, I'm slalom, everything. That is a very, very different story than when you have to ski and get somewhere across the choppy white caps of the reality of life. And many of us think that, and we want our best moments in Christianity to be those moments when it's glass. You're just slaloming across glass. And, and I thank God that he sustains us in those moments. He blesses and gives us times like that. But what's more amazing, and I think the thing that will multiply itself to the glory of Jesus forever and ever, is the fact that you're still here when it was so hard, when you prayed and the prayer was not answered, when life threw more at you than you thought you could possibly bear up underneath, and you kept one foot in front of the other, when sin continued to badger you and pull on you and tempt you in ways you could not believe, and slowly over the course of time you said, I'm walking with Christ, and he's forgiven me, and he's going to make me new. It's those teeth-gritting moments that point to the power of Jesus in ways that others simply can't. And so, Paul says, here's what I want you to look for. Look at the people who shouldn't be here. Look at the reality of a fallen world that even itself pushes back at you, and yet those who are in Christ continue on. 
They're patient in tribulation. They're constant in prayer. Those who love, let them love genuinely. And those who serve, let them serve purposefully. And those who endure, let them endure and suffer well. And finally, he says in verse 12, or verse 13 of Romans chapter 12, that we should be those kind of people who once we become awake to the fact that all we've been given is mercy, that we give ourselves away. Maybe I'd say it like this. Those who are following Jesus and have been met with his mercy realize that hoarding is not a kingdom ethic. Is that fair enough to say? Hoarding and walking with Jesus don't go hand in hand. Whether it's the hoarding kind, I can't get through my house, obviously, or it's the hoarding kind, I just love the security of knowing what's in an account somewhere or in my success or my status. No, you give yourself away because you've been given all things. Secondarily, though, and this is important, many people can give unbelievably generously if they believe it's for something that they know and love and will benefit them. But, Paul says, watch this. Christians give themselves away. They don't hoard things. They're generous to a, a, to a fault of contribution sometimes and not even just for themselves. So this is what he says. It's generous without partiality. Christianity is not tribalism. It's not tribalism. He says in verse 13, that we should seek to show hospitality. The word for hospitality, you know what the the root of the word hospitality is? Stranger love. We love strangers. We love those who can't love us back. We give to those who can't give back. Christianity, because we've been given all things, ought to encourage in us an openness, an open-handedness to say we are generous with those who can't pay us back. Hoarding is not a kingdom ethic, nor is tribalism. We're generous, especially to those who are not like us. And we do so not even when it's just happenstance or forced upon. I know many people are generous because they end up in a circumstance they would have never orchestrated, and they say, okay, fine, I'll do that. It's more radical than that. He says in Romans chapter 12, we should seek to show stranger love. Seek to put yourself in a position where you could be a blessing to those who would least expect it. Early on, as the church was being persecuted, one of the things that spoke to those who were in power, in a world where many children were being neglected, many babies being left to die, many orphans living in subhuman life, leaders of the Roman Empire at the time said the astounding, the amazing thing about Christians is that they give themselves, pain themselves, even to the point of harming what they have to care for the least of these, the youngest, these children, and then this little phrase there at the end, and not only their own, but also of their enemies. We give because we've been given to and not in a tribalistic way. So this kind of thing is, is, is big. I mean, maybe you just listened to this here this morning and you thought to yourself, like a freshman college student, I showed up in the wrong section of the class. Maybe you read through this and you think, that sounds great, I aspire to that, but is that, are you guys all like this? Is this what you're like? Because I can't get there. I don't know what's going on. And I want to encourage you, if you read through something like this and you say to yourself, oh man, this hurts, 
I want to encourage you in two ways. One, I want to remind you that sanctification is a degree of glory by degree of glory kind of thing. And that the Spirit of Jesus will walk with you even if you don't exhibit all these things in wonder. The amazing thing about being restored to God is that our imaginations have been awakened to how we were designed to be before we fell short of the glory of God. And so we have aching in, in, in us the perfection of heaven. And I want to encourage you that we all have that. And we know that we're not there yet. And you can be patient with yourself and with one another because sanctification happens over time. And he who began a good work in you will complete it. So be patient. And secondarily, I want to remind you with this, I want to remind you and hopefully encourage you with the reality that ultimately this kind of life is only going to happen and will take shape in us because we belong to Jesus. Jesus came and did not tell us, you're okay and everything's okay, stop worrying. In fact, Jesus came and he loved us enough to tell the truth concerning sin, that it had separated us from the Father and it deserved death. Jesus loved us genuinely like a brother and he spoke truth. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He served with fervor and passion all the way to the point of shedding his own blood. Jesus served with such passion that it led to him suffering well. He endured without opening his mouth the accusation and the persecution of those for whom he was dying. He suffered betrayal all the while being constant in prayer and bringing his dependent need in the moment of his suffering to the Father. Jesus suffered well on our behalf. And if you feel out of place, if you show up this morning and you think, wait, you guys nailed all this? How is this possible? If you imagine that one day you'll stand before the judgment throne in heaven and you'll look across the gates and you'll see in there all these people who have been freed of their sins with no more tears and you're standing there with mascara running down haphazardly put together, still with all of your foibles, and you think to yourself, man, I'm out of place. I just don't fit. I'm a stranger here. What's going to happen is if you confess and give yourself to Christ, he's going to look and he say, I came for the stranger. He's going to say, I'm here exactly for those who are far off. You are welcome here. You're a part of the family. There are no strangers for those who are in Christ. Jesus welcomes those who can't make it on their own. So let these things be an encouragement to you. As we strive, degree by degree, to live a life like this, let's be patient with one another and ultimately let's commit ourselves to Jesus who has earned a righteousness that we inherit when we trust in him.